Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. He said, it's not easy stepping into the batter's box, especially in April, where those are the only numbers you have. So if you're struggling, you, you know, they're, you're batting 150. And you step into the batter's box and you're looking out to center field and you got the biggest television screen in the world staring back at you, telling you how bad you are. He goes, that, that can mess with you. He said, so what I do every single night, this is still a younger player at the time, uh, still is, but he said, at the end of every game, I go to my locker and I take out a laptop that has a spreadsheet on it. And I give myself credit for hits, even if I didn't get a hit, if I hit the ball hard, if I made a productive out, if I did something to help my team. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B, B-E-L-L to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today has been a member of the Kansas City Royals television broadcast since 2008. He served as the host of every pre- and post-game show on Fox Sports Kansas City. Our guest is a University of Wisconsin graduate. He won a 2001 Mid-America Emmy for sports reporting. He's covered multiple championships from Major League Baseball, NFL. Our guest is a speaker. He's built a 25-year career developing and maintaining strong relationships, which I know we're going to talk about today. Over the last three years, he's hosted a weekly podcast called Rounding the Bases, over 500 episodes, pretty impressive. And his first book is Small Ball, Big Results. Our guest is Joel Goldberg. Everybody knows Joel Goldberg. Joe, thanks for being here, buddy. Good to be with you, Rob. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, you love about being able to tell somebody about what, what happened. I mean, let's start out with this, man. Tell us, about, tell us about the book. Yeah, the book, you know, in some ways, I, I wonder if all of this is an accident or if it was just meant to be. I mean, I don't, I'm not one of those hokey, like, karma type of guys, per se, but I don't know that I ever dreamed of writing a book or being a speaker or certainly when we were growing up there wasn't such thing as a podcast although as a kid that always wanted to be a broadcaster I think I did my own early versions of podcasts with friends whether it was pretending like we were DJs or all that so there, there's a natural progression to all of this and the very short of it is that as I got further in my television career and I realized I had a message to share one that applied to offices and people's lives from lessons learned in the locker room and the podcast started and everybody said, you got to write a book. If you're a speaker, you got to write a book. And I, I really didn't know what to do or what to write on. And it all sort of came to me in the last couple of years in getting a chance to, to talk to so many people on my podcast, seeing the similarities to sports. And then it just, you know, you, you sort of, I don't know if there's an aha moment, but you just sort of say, I've got a collection of stuff that I think will be interesting. That'll help people. And it all kind of came together, and, and here we are. So what's your, what's your favorite part of the book, if somebody picks this up, man, that, that you want them to, like, really get out of it? 
Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, I, you know, first and foremost, I, I never wanted to write a how-to book or a leader, leadership strategies or how to build your business or here's the story of the Kansas City Royals World Championship. But I did feel like through effective storytelling, I could, I could write this book and just give people lessons that'll help them in life. And so every chapter is actually, it's, it's kind of labeled as an inning. I figured I'd go with the baseball theme. And every chapter is a topic of small ball. So, you know, when you talk about a biggest takeaway, if, if you are someone that wants to learn how to build better trust with the highest level of person, whether that's the big time CEO or the athlete or, you know, I mean, this isn't a baseball book. If you like baseball, you'll enjoy the stories. If you hate baseball, I think that the stories are still relevant. That's the way that they're written. And so when you talk about building trust, hey, here's some examples of how the top level CEO did it or how I did it with the superstar athlete that I had no business connecting with. Um, you know, how to pay attention to detail, the importance of every single role in every company, in every sports team. You know this, Rob, but the role of that guy on the bench at any given moment could be as important as the guy stepping in to hit that big free throw or, or stepping into the batter's box. And so it's just chock full of, of lessons through storytelling. And, you know, I, I think I want people to have their own takeaways. Yeah. I love it, man. You, you talk about, obviously, I mean, one of the staples of your messages is building that trust and relationships. And, you know, that's definitely what separates you from a lot of other people. I mean, you have to have those relationships. I know that was effective this year because of how everything changed in terms of how the actual you know, media and interviews then were done. I mean, what's a story you can share with us about how we build relationships and, you know, with, with other people? Yeah, I, I believe that this is probably the most important thing in almost any profession. Look, if you work for yourself and you don't deal with anybody and you're in some kind of isolated world, I, I suppose you don't need to do that. But what job doesn't involve some form of a team, some form of building relationships with people? And I think the interesting thing about this is I, I don't remember, and I went to journalism school at Wisconsin, I don't remember ever being taught how to build relationships. Right. Right. Like, I mean, do they teach building relationships in business school and journalism school? Uh, if they touch on it at all, they're not doing it the way that they should. And so there was never a lesson. There was never a blueprint. My favorite story to tell, and I write it in the book in the trust chapter. Um, and, and by the way, each chapter has a half, you know, two half innings like a like a game. And so one story is a business story. One story is a baseball story. My baseball story involves Albert Pujols. Before I worked in Kansas City, I worked in St. Louis from 1998 through 2007. Albert arrived as a, you know, a fairly highly touted rookie in 2001. He hadn't been highly touted as a draft pick. He'd been drafted later. But we saw him at spring training. We saw what he did in A-ball. We knew that he had the chance to be good. We didn't realize he was going to make the team in 01. We didn't realize he would be a superstar that quickly. I think he was an all-star his first year. He might have been an MVP candidate. He was rookie of the year. And within a few years, he'd eclipsed Barry Bonds as the best player in baseball. The short of the story, Rob, is that it took me until 2007, that's seven years with Albert, to build any form of relationship. And it wasn't because he messed it up. It's because I didn't know how to do it. And the mistake that I made in the first uh, 10 or so years of my career was putting superstar athletes like Albert, and you could fill in the blank to whatever the profession is, whoever the top of the game is, 
they still want to be treated like people. And yes, when you're at the top of the food chain, so to speak, you get perks and you get spoiled and then you get treated in a different way and you get spoiled by that. There's no doubt about it. However, what guys like that, women like that miss is just that normalcy. Everybody walks up to them and treats them in this weird, like, ooh, you know, kind of way. And it took me to 07. And all I can tell you is this. I got rejected most of the time by Albert Pujols for interview requests. And it was very humbling, not even humbling, humiliating thing to have a game end and Pujols maybe hits two home runs. And I hear the producer in my ear say, who's your guest walking off the field? And I say, I got no one because he just rejected me. So in my mind, I'm just thinking, boy, this guy, this guy's a jerk. And he, see, and, and he sees you on a daily basis, yeah, right? This was not a like stab in the dark, try to, try to land the interview, or I always say it's, it's like trying to sell to someone. Right. And sometimes you have a long time to build that relationship. Other times you got to do it on the spot, which I've learned how to do that too. But I had had years, I saw him on an everyday basis. That doesn't mean that, that he was rude to me every single time. It means I had no idea how it was going to go, but most of the time it didn't go well. Every now and then he said yes. It's not like I never interviewed him in seven years. But I mean, it was, I, I don't get nervous on TV. But back then, it was a nerve-wracking moment to sit there and say, the success of this coming interview, this post-game interview, relied on his yes or no. The end of the story is this. In 07, I pulled him aside. I just had an interview recently with him where he decided to do it. It bought me nothing. I mean, the next day, cold shoulder again. And I, I walked up to him in 07 in Houston at Minute Maid Park or whatever they called it back then and said, can I have a moment of your time in private? No camera, no interview. He said, sure. We went into the visiting batting tunnel at, um, or yeah, visiting batting tunnel in Houston. He said, what's up? And I said, look, this is confidential. I hope you'll keep it a secret but I have a job opportunity in Kansas City next year. Nobody knows about it except for my wife, my boss, and now you. I know you grew up in Kansas City and went to junior college there. His family had gone from Dominican to New York to when he was mm -hmm. 16, Kansas City. What, what can you tell me about Kansas City? And it's like he was so flattered that I would value his opinion, and he was so interested in this that we had a real-life talk. And... You know, he said, hey, it's a great place to raise a family. It's a great city. I can't tell you if it's a better job or not, but I can promise you your secret is safe with me and let me know what happens. And a couple of weeks later, we were in Milwaukee. I told him the news. He said, let's celebrate. Let me take you out to lunch. And there I am sitting across the table from the greatest baseball player in the world at that point in the back of a Puerto Rican grocery store in, uh, in Milwaukee where they had a little restaurant in the back. And from that day forward, we built a friendship. And I, I went back to him a few years ago and I said, Albert, as I got all these interviews over the years when he went to Anaheim, I said, Albert, I got to confess to you that you used to scare the living heck out of me. And he got red in the face. He was sitting in the visiting clubhouse in Kansas City. His son was sitting with him. He was a little bit embarrassed. And he said, you know what? Everybody wants something from me. But until I trust you, I don't know who to believe. But once I trust you, I'll do anything for you. And that was the moment right there where I realized that if this guy that I didn't like, that was the greatest in the world, if I could connect with him by actually being a human being, then that's what it was going to take. And it changed everything for me. Great story, man. You know, I, I have a friend that was um, meeting when, when Rudy Giuliani was the mayor there of New York. And, you know, it was a long line of shaking hands and all that. And it was an event. And everyone's telling him, you know, what a great city, what a great city. And he, he's on the fly. When he gets up there, he asks him, 
hey, what's the, what's your, what's the best pizza place here in, in New York? And, and Rudy like told him something and then, and then he stopped him when he was kind of walking away and he said, no, 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 no. This is my favorite one. And then they kind of, then they were, they were off and then, and then chatting. Is, is that, is that the key there? Is it to find a common ground, something to talk about where it's, it's not just uh, Hey, how you doing? Here's my business card. Yes. And I knew this over the years, but I didn't quite put all the pieces together. You find out someone's interest at the minimum, it gives you a talking point, but I think it needs to be more than that. Uh, first off, if that talking point, hey, we could talk about the latest movie. Hey, we could talk about the latest musical release. Hey, we could, whatever it is. That's great. One, they need to know that you're not trying to leverage it into something else, that it organically has to happen over time. And two, can you provide some value back? In Albert's case, I think it was value just in conversation and respecting him and value, valuing his opinion. As much of a superstar as this guy was, how many people asked for his advice outside of maybe hitting or something like that? Look, we all know that when someone asks our opinion about someone or something, that it feels good that someone values our opinion, provided that it is coming from an authentic place. And and we, you know, as human beings, I think for the most part, we can we can snuff that stuff out. So I, you know, I, there's not a one. And here's the other thing, Rob. I mean, there's not a, a one size fits all here. You got to do some homework. You got to dig. You got to be curious. I make it a point every single day when I go into the clubhouse, which didn't happen in 2020. I mean, that's a whole other story uh, in terms of building relationships of genuinely being curious and walking around the room. And while other reporters are maybe just going for the quick soundbite, which is all of our jobs to get, whatever downtime, and there's a lot of waiting around, I just go up and start, start talking to guys. Oftentimes, the guys that don't speak English as a first language, I wish, I wish my Spanish was better. But I watch those guys off in the corner sitting by themselves talking in Spanish, and I just may walk up and you know, ask about, hey, how's your mom doing? Or what's going on with the latest with your son? Or who, whatever it is. Or just something about, hey, what about that game last night? How does that rank among your favorite plays? And you start building a relationship. And those guys who often are ignored by the media, not that everybody wants to stand in front of the cameras. Most people don't. They'd prefer to avoid the interview. It's easier. But I think everybody likes a little bit of attention and acknowledgement. So I, I think it's, and I, Rob, I wrote a, a chapter in the book called Read the Room. And you could, you could change that expression to anything, but it, it pertains to what I do. When I walk into that locker room every day, I am reading body language. And you could go a long ways in not inserting yourself in someone's conversation, life, or whatever's going on at the wrong time. So that's the other thing is that you work every day on building these relationships, but if the timing is wrong, you'll totally sabotage everything. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, Puke and Rally. It's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com. With, with your book, and you talk about one of the best interviews you had was uh, and I guess probably relationships as well is with uh, Ned Yost. And, and he had a walk-off moment of where you didn't even get to ask like that last question, but talk about like, talk about that interview because man, that's a fantastic coach who, you know, from the public's perspective and coaching, you know, just lives and dies off of their results. And it was a fantastic coach along the way. And I always loved Bud Grant because 
he said, you know, if, if winning and losing dictates how you feel about yourself, then you're on a long road. And, you know, talk about that relationship and, and what you learned from that experience with, with Coach Yost. Well, I, I think one of the biggest things I learned with Ned was that you, and it's a little bit of what I just said too. I mean, you really needed to try to get in his head and understand where he was at. I mean, I, I spent the first, not the first 20, but close to 20 years. So I've been in this 26 years and 20 plus of them with Tony LaRussa and Ned Yost as managers. Neither one of those guys are going to be the first to raise their hand to do an interview. And they won't be last either if they are given the choice to not do an interview. Those guys are fine never, ever being interviewed. You know, there are others like a Joe Madden or a Ron Gardenhire. I'm talking in the baseball world, but I go back to my football days, the Dick Vermeils of the world that are just a joy to be around because it's like you just, you just press go and they go. And it takes a lot more with a Ned Yost. It's not that, you know, a Joe Madden is any less focused on winning. So sometimes we have this thing of saying, well, Ned Yost is so locked in, you just can't get through to him. Well, Terry Francona is just as locked in too, and he's about as easy a guy to deal with. But, you know, some have the personalities and some don't. So I think it becomes all that more um, important to, to just try to get in their head for when the right and wrong time is. And here's the thing about Ned. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a side of him that would open up. It wasn't a lot, but you had to you had to respect those spots, know when they happened, push a little bit when you might get that right answer. But he was not going to be a very overly public guy. So don't put him in that position to to have private moments in public because it just wasn't going to work out. He also was a guy that loved to give reporters crap. And um, he'd look for sort of that that weak guy to pick on every now and then. And if he found it, he'd, he'd keep going and going. I think it's a little bit of flexing muscles. It's a little bit of sarcasm. So I was never going to get walked on like that. But what I understood was that when he was giving me a little bit of grief, I could give it back, provided yeah. that I didn't embarrass him. And that was just my reading it. Like, give it back to him, and he's going to laugh and enjoy that. But don't ever, don't ever do it in a way where suddenly you're mocking him and he looks bad. Because now suddenly I'm the bad guy. And so it's really understanding that relationship. But, you know, to what you're saying, here he is managing his last ever game and he's about to retire. And he's, he's doing this interview in front of a live audience, not just at home, but in the stadium. And everybody's sitting in their seats. The season's over. And they're listening to these words. And he's got his sunglasses on. And I got one more question to ask him. I could, I could hear it. I'm like, all right, one more. You kind of try to read. And I'm like, I got to keep it together here, too, because this is actually turning into an emotional interview, one of the first ever with him. And I could hear his voice cracking. And he just wrapped up the answer that said, thank you so much. Thank you all. And he just walked off. And I could tell that he was pulling the plug at that point because he knew that he didn't have a whole lot left. And it all it all worked out very well. But um, again, it gets back to just reading people and reading that moment and then letting them go with it, too, and, and trying not to step on it. It's fantastic, man. That's why I don't like to talk a lot in these podcasts because you're the you're the expert, man. I just want to ask the questions. You know, Nick. Well, Nick's, and, I'm, and I'm usually on the other side of it, so you know, I, I get it. This this is a podcast about hinge moments. You know that that one moment, one person, one event that makes all the difference. It connects who we are with who we're going to become. And since we don't know that is, 
you know, or when it's coming, we can only look back and see the impact. Share with us, you know, one of your hinge moments. Well, I'll, I'll give you one, and I wrote about it in the book. Uh, really, the other one would be what I just told you about Pujols. And so, I, and I think we all have, and you're more an expert on this than me, Rob, I think we all have a series of hinge moments. Indeed. And, and I think that you should be looking for those too, or if not looking for them, looking back to find them, right? I mean, one to me was just figuring out that I had this purpose of good days, bad days, good games, bad games, short games, long games, rain delays or not, that someone's always watching and that someone might be in a hospital bed or in hospice or stationed overseas and they could care less that it's a 13 nothing game. And so, you know, we all look for that motivation and there are moments where you sit there and say, is anybody watching this show that's starting at 3.14 in the morning after all of these rain delays? There's always someone watching. So that's, that's the one thing. But I'll go back to my first year here, 2008, in Kansas City. And I was lucky enough to work for parts of four years with Paul Splitter, who is the Royals' all-time wins leader, uh, dominant left-handed pitcher in the um, you know, 70s and 80s, and, and as equally talented as a broadcaster. I mean, worked his way up to where not only was he the color commentator on TV, he would do six innings of color commentary on TV, and he'd do three innings, the middle innings, as the play-by-play guy. Um, he, was, he was that good. And so in 2008, I remember Split pulled me aside. I'd go, keep, remember, I'd gone from covering the Cardinals, who were playoff contenders every year. They'd won a world championship in 2006. Here's 2008. To the Royals, who were going to be a 90-100 to 100 loss team almost every single year. And I was still the somewhat innocent baseball fan, even having been in the business for, for 10 years, you know, living and dying by the wins and losses. And I'd get frustrated, you know, travel with the team. You want to see that you get to know the guys, you want to see them do well, and you get kind of ticked off after the losses. Oh, here's another loss. And oh my gosh, can you believe they did this? Can you believe they did that? And Split pulled me aside and, and one night and he said to me, He's kind of like a you know older brother or father figure type, and he says, "There are a lot of really important people that are paid to lose sleep over these losses, and you are not one of them." And you know, at first glance, that could look like, "Hey, don't care," and that was the furthest thing from the truth. What he was trying to tell you, and I think it's a message to anyone in any profession, is good day or bad day, you have a job to do, and. You have to maintain that energy even when they lose. And, and I'll tell you, Rob, I mean, I've been lucky enough to cover two teams to go to the world championship. I've watched guys grow up from 22 years old to married and parents and world champions and all that type of stuff. But I've covered a lot of bad baseball over the years. I've had six games, seven game losing streaks. I've had stretches where you work 18 days in a row, 19 days in a row, and you see two or three wins if you're lucky. And that will wear on you because it's a lot easier to talk about the wins. More people are watching. Players are more accessible. They're more energetic. But you have to find a way. And there have been stretches in my career since that speech was split where I might have a producer say, you know, after seven losses in a row, what are we going to talk about tomorrow for the pregame show? What are we going to do for a guest? What are we going to talk about that we didn't already talk about yesterday, the day before, the day before? And I always just sort of have this faith now that it'll work itself out and that the energy has to be brought every single day, no matter what. And that was a hinge moment for me because it, it reminded me that I've got this job to do every single day. Now, I will tell you, it might have ruined me a little bit as a sports fan 
because I just don't experience the emotions that sports fans doesn't mean that when the you know when the team is in game seven of the world series or this this big moment that you don't still have a little bit of that you know that that heart pounding stuff which is fun it's a reminder that you know hey i i love sports i'm a fan too but it's just that reminder that when they lose yeah that's not as much fun and it could be a heartbreaking moment i gotta get on the air and go talk about it and people which by the way won't watch as frequently when they're losing as when they're winning they want to hear the good stuff but someone's always watching, and I owe it to them to have the same energy that I do after a win. It's not going to quite be the same. I mean, it's a lot easier to have rah-rah energy than just, you know, oh, this was – but you still have to bring it every single day. And that was that was really a, a career-altering moment for me in 08. And I think about it every day, too. I mean, we lost, um, we lost Paul Splitorf to cancer in 2011. And um, one of the true blessings of my my life and career to be able to work with him and call him a friend. And I feel like I owe it to myself to be able to carry on a bit of what he taught me. That's fantastic, man. You know, I mean, yeah, I believe it was Michael Jordan, too, you know, and he was asked that question because, I mean, he could, you know, Michael Jordan could could go at 85% sometimes, but he never did. And one of the things he always said was that there's going to be that one kid that's the only shot he's ever going to see, man, I don't want to let that kid down. And that's kind of the same mentality. You know, on that note, you know, what you're telling me is that the process is more important than, than that product. Um, talk to us about that and what you've experienced throughout the years and being able to focus on that process. I, I'm a process guy. And, you know, when process is given the right amount of time to, um, to take place, which is a long-term thing. It could be it could be a very successful and organic way to go about things. And you know, I, I had a conversation once with uh, Big Poppy David Ortiz, and we were talking about what the Royals had done. And it was interesting because he said to me, "You know what the Royals did is amazing, but we could have never done it the way they did it in Boston. They had all these years to let these young players mature." Uh, guys like Alex Gordon and Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakis. He said, here in Boston, if, if we don't get that figured out within two years, they run you out of town and they bring the next guy in. And that's just a difference in, in markets. They had the ability when Dayton Moore, their general manager, who was here when I got here in 08, he started in 06 and is still here in 2020. And he pretty much told the owner at the time, David Glass, that this is going to take eight years which is a tough thing to sell to a fan base that has been waiting and waiting and waiting since the eighties, but they were able to honor that process. Sometimes you have to speed that up. But I remember a guy in the organization said to me once at, at spring training, he's a minor league guy. He said, you know, I've worked for other organizations and after two to three years that, you know, that, that initial speech, we're going to do this and this and this. And then they pivot and they go a different direction after two years and they try something new and they try something new. And Dayton was able to, to really stick to the process of building and not have that pressure. Of course there's pressure, but not have to say, Hey, uh, if this doesn't work in two years, try something else. So that's the first thing I would say, but it's interesting because we now hear the expression in sports, trust the process all the time. And I remember when I got here in, you know, eight, that was sort of the thing that everybody, even in the media kind of mockingly would say, update more, trust the process. Cause they didn't believe the process was going to work because they, they had no reason to believe nothing else would work. Right. But I think that when you have the right process and you have the right patience, 
and of course the work ethic, it works itself out. Um, in the more um, player specific, I'll give you this example, and I love this one. I use this one with groups a lot. Uh, the Royals have a player named Hunter Dozier. He's a first-round draft pick and a little bit of a late bloomer. He's doing well now and um, plays third and outfield and first. for They move him around. But remember a couple of years ago, he was struggling early, and I was interviewing him, and I, I said, like, how, do you, how do you handle that? And he said, well, there's a process to it. He said, it's not easy stepping into the batter's box, especially in April, where those are the only numbers you have. So if you're struggling, you, you know, they're, you're batting 150. And you step into the batter's box, and you're looking out to center field, and you got the biggest television screen in the world staring back at you, telling you how bad you are. He goes, that, that can mess with you. He said, so what I do every single night, and this is still a younger player at the time, uh, still is, but he said, at the end of every game, I go to my locker, and I take out a laptop that has a spreadsheet on it. And I give myself credit for hits, even if I didn't get a hit, if I hit the ball hard, if I made a productive out, if I did something to help my team. So instead of holding myself to a standard of, say, batting 300 or whatever his, um, you know, his number would be, I hold myself to trying to bat 500. But I get credit for that sacrifice. I get credit for all those things that don't show up on that scoreboard. If that spreadsheet tells me that I'm at my target number, then I'm going to stick with the process and recognize that the numbers up on that board long-term will work themselves out. If my numbers personally show me that I am off or I'm struggling, then I'm going to go to the coach and see what we can tweak in terms of the process. So I thought it was a really good approach that all of us can use in saying, what metrics matter to us? How can we best measure them, even if they don't show up on the sales sheet or they don't show up in the wins and loss column? And is that a good guide to let us know if the process is working? Yeah. Hit the ball hard, you win. I mean, that's basically all you can control in that game anyway. <laughs> I remember Dustin right. Pedroia at one time was like 0 for 14, and they kind of asked him, said, you know, I mean, you're struggling out there. He's like, struggling? Like, what are you talking about? I'm hitting the ball hard almost every time up. But he was 0 for 14, well, well, right? Yeah, and, and I would say this too, to, to add to that thought, and this is just my part of my routine and my process, and I think it's interesting when you watch people keep score. I'm always amazed that people will say to me, well, why do you keep score just for fun or is it for work? And I'm like, I, you know, I, I mean, I got a game to talk about every single day and I could look at this scorecard and I do everything digitally, or I could look back at a scorecard from 50 days ago or from five years ago and I could pick out or find a moment. And so I do all this color coding and, and just ways to let myself know. So if I see that Dustin Pedroia is 0 for 14, I can go back and look and oh my gosh, of those 14 at-bats that he didn't get a hit in, eight of them I highlighted with my color that shows that he hit the ball hard. And so I could look back and say, okay, he's 0 for 14, but he very easily could be 7 for 14. And it's a good way for me then in my job to let that viewer know that just he's 0 for 14, that yeah, he's really struggling. Or guess what? I had this sneaking suspicion that he's going to bust out in a big way tomorrow or sometime in the coming days. And it almost always works out. I'm not that smart. It's just paying attention to detail and paying attention to all that process. Yeah. I love it, man. Hey, what about a, a, a memorable time? And you've shared one already with Albert Pujols. Was there another memorable time that athlete just really let their guard down with you? Yeah. I mean, it, it happens a lot. Um, you know, I, gosh, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, certainly 
and, and I don't want to be, you know, too Debbie Downer, but having dealt with, you know, deaths, um, you know, players that have unexpectedly died. And I, I mean, of course, if you're talking about a player, they're younger, it's almost going to be unexpected. And so, you, you know, a lot of emotion uh, in terms of, of that. Um, you know, I, I think every one of those, those locker room champagne celebrations there's one I'll share this one and, and there's a greater story to it, but um, hey, look, for the most part, guys aren't going to, you know, sell their, all their secrets and, you know, they're, they got an image to maintain and all of that. I, I like I said before, I, I certainly work hard in building and earning their trust every single day. And I think it shows in the interviews, they, they generally just give me more, but we had a pitcher named Jordano Ventura. He is one of those that, that we lost. He passed away in a, car accident tragically in the Dominican Republic in January of 2017. And he and I were close. I mean, as close as a guy like me could be at the time, 45 years old with a 26 year old pitcher from the Dominican Republic. It's not like we were going and hanging out, but I was the only guy that he would do an English interview with on TV. And um, he, he might do a little something with a writer here and there, but, but he generally wanted a translator. And, and most of the guys from Dominican, Venezuela, Latin American countries do understandably. But we had built that trust. His English was better than what he realized. And, and I write about him in the book, too. It's one of the great privileges of my career. I didn't teach him English, but in, in always trying to put him in a comfortable spot where he trusted me and, and in a way that I said, I, I will not allow you to fail, which meant if he was searching for a word, really paying attention and helping him out with it or, or really being clear with my questions, more deliberate so that he understood them, or even giving them the questions in advance and rehearsing a little bit so that he was in a good place. Fans got to love him. And, you know, he was a guy that started a lot of brawls. He was a guy that could be misunderstood and 100 miles an hour on the mound, scrawny guy that, that was throwing a little too high. And, you know, we'd, we'd get in fights and all kinds of stuff. But players loved him because he was fun. And as fans started to see the personality, they understood him greater beyond the language barrier. And after the Royals clinched their second straight pennant in 2015, and I'm in the, you know, in the locker room covered in champagne at Kauffman Stadium, suit and tie and all that stuff, and I go for Jordano. And he didn't need the translator. I wouldn't let him have the translator. And he did bring his good friend Edinson Volquez, who they were like brothers, another Dominican. He was kind of like a big brother to him. And Eddie came, I think, for moral support and couldn't get a word in because Ventura just kept going and going and going. And the, the interview went viral. But basically, he's holding up a, a flag, I think it was, that says, you know, 2015 American League champs or something like that. And, and he says, um, in a little bit of a broken English, ooh, baby, we going to the World Series again. Ooh, baby. And he's got the goggles and he's laughing. And... It was just, it was his big personality in his English and everyone saw it. I mean, to this day around Kansas City, people will say, you're Donald Ventura, ooh, baby. Or you go on to, to YouTube and you find it. And it was like, wow, this is like, this wouldn't have happened without building this trust. And it wouldn't have happened with any other person in English in the world. I didn't give him those words. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I felt like, this was a moment where I got to share the personality of the guy that I knew with everyone that was looking for me outside. And that's really what it was all about. That's fantastic, man. I love that. You know, I, and that's the part I think I love about, 
being on the outside in, in sports broadcasting is when, you know, those, those moments, you know, those Al Michael moments, you know, believe in miracles or, um, you know, better than most when they become part of the actual story itself is, is pretty, is pretty neat. Well, and the other thing too, is you don't, hopefully you don't know that they're coming. Right. I mean, I suppose you could try to script this stuff and every now and then you could, you could fool people and pull it off. But boy, it's so much more fun when it just naturally happens. I mean, somewhere was, it? I think it was that year. They all blend together. Now it wasn't that, that night, Danny Duffy, who's you know good left-handed pitcher for the Royals and, you know, certainly, certainly fits the left-handed stereotype of being a little bit quirky, but as, as good of a guy as you can meet. And I'm interviewing one guy after the next and, and there I look over and I'm going to, all right, guys, Hey, I got Danny Duffy. And I look and he's, he's in a bear suit. I'm, I, I don't know why it was from some character of a favorite show and he had got this bear suit, the exact type of one that this guy in the show watched. And he's walking around celebrating with his teammates zipped head to toe and well, it wasn't zipped, but I mean, it went over his head and, and, and he's dressed like a bear. And um, I started off the interview basically like kind of like the Oscars, you know, like who are you wearing or what are you wearing? And he just looks at me, he goes, it's a bear suit. I'm wearing a bear suit, Joel. And that went viral and it started to be on not billboards, but t-shirts and slogans. And I don't even think he said those exact words, but suddenly in Kansas city, the expression, it's a bear suit, Joel became a thing. And I didn't know that was going to happen, but it did. I've got a bobblehead downstairs now that some guy made of me interviewing him in a bear suit and goggles on and the whole works. And so, you know, I, I think when that stuff happens and it's not planned, it's just so much more real. And the other thing too, is that fans, and this is what everybody wants. Fans feel like they're a part of it. You know, mm -hmm. we live in this world where everybody watches everything that they say because of social media and because one wrong word can sink you. And it really puts up this barrier and everything is so um, just, just, just so routine. And, and, but when, when you could let that guard down a little bit and show a little bit of personality and take people on the inside, that's all fans want. They just want to be a part of it. Yeah. In, in terms of the natural and things just unfolding, is that what made uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper one of the best interviews? Oh, for sure. And he was a performer. And, you know, I don't know how well you can get to know someone over the course of five minutes of talking to them before an interview and then five minutes on camera. But I, I felt like he and I had this bond for 10 minutes. And I think he had that ability to do that with a lot of people. He was really a sweetheart of a guy. But it was, I would say that the two interviews in my career that sort of just ended up that way were him and Will Ferrell. Uh, neither of them were really planned, although I, I knew that Will Ferrell was in the house for a charity thing with Royals and that I was going to attempt to get him. I didn't realize he was just going to walk in and interrupt what I was doing. And then in Rowdy Rowdy Piper's case, we're at Wrigley Field, and my producer looked, this is 07 with the Cardinals, and my producer looked at the list that was sitting in the press box that said, you know, the time of the first pitch and anthem and all that, and he looks and it says, first pitch, Rowdy Rowdy Piper. He's like, oh, my gosh, we – if he's here, we got to try to get him. And so sure enough, he shows up in the press box. He's wearing his kilt and everything. And we asked, so we scrapped, you know, a third of our show, just axed it out, whatever we had. It wasn't going to be as good as Rowdy Rowdy Piper. And man, I, I could have done an hour with him. I mean, it, it wouldn't have mattered. There would have been no research needed. 
you just threw something out there and he started going with it. And by the end, he's going, he's going on and on about how he and I should be tag team partners. And I look at him and I say, you know, I, I mean, I'd love to do that. I'm not going to really scare anybody, but with my last name being Goldberg, I kind of always had this dream of a Goldberg Goldberg tag team. And he kind of <laughs> quizzically looks at me like he's pondering this, you know, he's just performing and he's thinking. And, and, and then the solution comes, he goes, I'll change my name. I will become Jewish. I will be Goldberg. We could be a tag team part and, and just going on and on. And then uh, I said, all right, well, you know, with you by my side, I, I know that this is going to be okay. And he turns live on camera and plants a big, big fat kiss right on my cheek. And uh, he goes, all right, we're off and running. Let's go. And it was just one of those moments. Like I'm sitting there like, how did this just happen? But, you know, I, I think that there's also a message that I was never like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's right. I mean, I've watched this guy. I don't watch wrestling anymore. I, I think I outgrew it. Some people don't, some do. But I, I loved this guy as a kid. So I needed to keep some of that in, but you channel that energy in terms of excitement. Again, remembering they're just people and it just, it just worked out. And it could have never, ever, ever been planned. It was one of my favorite moments in TV. No, it's fantastic, man. You know, in terms of the mental game, I always say the mental game is more about subtraction than it is addition. And one of the things that, that you've spoken about quite often, I know it's part of your message, but eliminating distractions. I mean, delve into that topic just a little bit more and how that's helped you in your career. It's hard because, I mean, first off, we're all wired differently. And I don't think that that's just a skill that you have. I think it's a skill that you have to work on every day. I think you're much better at it than I am, Rob. And it's one that I'm still working on it every single day. One of my issues is just that I'm, you know, I'm your classic um, squirrel, you know, and I'm all over the place and, and social media and all the distractions. But, you know, when, when, you, when you get in front of a camera, you got to lock in, you know, it's showtime. And so I think that not everyone can relate to being in front of that camera, but there just are moments where you got to get in that zone and eliminate all of that. And, and a lot of that, by the way, is the negativity. So one of the things you know, back to what we talked about before with Paul Splitorf is at least for me, one of the things that I need to do to stay positive is to not get sunk too much by the negative. And so I make it very clear to friends of mine. And I, I'm one of those guys that um, my, my friends and people that I'm close with in my network, if you want to text me during a game, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm, I'm not the play-by-play -play guy. Shoot, if you text me during a pre- or post-game show, I'll probably text you back during a commercial if, if we're sitting around waiting for two minutes. But if you're going to bring to me the complaints about why the manager didn't do this or how did this guy not hit this or our pitching sucks or blah, 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 I'm generally going to stop you after the probably second time because I don't need to be the source of, of um, or the recipient of all the venting. Like, go find somebody else to do that. I still need to make, so that's a distraction to me that I just eliminate. And I'm very comfortable saying, I'm not the guy. I'll, I'll even do that with some people that I work with who, you know, somebody on the crew might be like, can you believe that he made that move? Eh, whatever, you know, just part of the game. I'm not a lot of fun like that. I mean, my wife says that I'm sort of the wet blanket to people's fandom, but it's what enables me to eliminate those distractions. So I, I use that example just to say, and as someone that is still far from mastering the ability to lock in and eliminate distractions, but there are certain that I can recognize right away that say, this does me no good. It's the same thing on Twitter, by the way. When, when fans want to reach out and ask a question, 
I've got the ability to access that. Maybe they don't know how to find it. Uh, maybe they don't have the same research tools. And you know, that's my world, I know how to find it. So I'm happy to always help out and lend some perspective. But if it's just gonna be a place to gripe and vent to me, there's no real, uh, there's no value to it. And then they could start to get a little bit mean or a little bit personal, or it's just, you know, trolling type of stuff. And you wanna know that, and this is, I think a good lesson for everything in terms of distractions. I hit the mute button, it's gone. You can do it all you want, but I'm not gonna let it come into my world. And so I think that that's a lesson, a greater lesson about distractions. What can you do to push that aside and eliminate it? And it's easier said than done, obviously. Some of the way things are set up with electronics, it actually is easier. But I think there's a lesson every single day for us, every single moment in, in removing that negativity and those distractions. I love it, man, because I think that's you and I are in the same vein here with, uh, I don't have notifications that pop up on my phone. I'm, I'm in charge of that. If I want to see when something is i'll check it you know yes. let me yeah I mean, let me ask you this is what question should i be asking joel that i'm that i'm not asking um that's a good one you know i i think i think that the question of purpose is a worthwhile one to ask and one that First off, it's a great question for everyone, right? What's your purpose? Why do you do what you do? But I also think it's, it's one that I believe is forever evolving for us. So, you know, you started off talking in this podcast about the book and you know, I couldn't have told you three years ago why I would write a book. People were just telling me to write one. I didn't really have a why there. It became obvious to me at a certain point wait a minute, I have all these experiences that I could share with others that I think will help and entertain and, and inform. And, you know, I think that my television career has been that way too. Like I, I find incredible privilege in traveling around the country in a non-pandemic year with the team and being the, the eyes and ears and, and the conduit. And I didn't really ever sign up to do it for that reason. I didn't really sign up because there's somebody that could be cheered up in a hospital bed. And so, you know, I've learned all of those things about my purpose and I'm continuing to learn them. So I, I think that's a question that fascinates me because I don't know that I haven't fully answered yet. Other than I, I believe that if you're curious, you're observant, it's always, you know, the 2020 stuff, it's so much easier to look back. I wish I had done this. And so trying to live in that moment of saying, what's going on right now that I can learn in this moment? Because usually we reflect afterwards, right? Like it took me seven years, as I mentioned with Pujols. I wish I'd had that being in the moment and really understanding it at the time. So I think that's probably the question is, you know, what's your purpose? How is it evolving? And I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Now, I look forward to, uh, to the book and uh, obviously going to direct listeners to your podcast over 500 episodes, man. It's pretty cool. But um, where, where would well, you like, where would you like well, people to follow you as well, man? Yeah. And, and I will just say this, like the 500, it doesn't fully add up. If you're talking about a weekly show 50 per, uh, you know, 52 per year, if you're hitting the holiday weeks and all of that. But what happened was when the pandemic hit, I just realized I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out of work for baseball. The podcast isn't a big moneymaker, but uh, at all, but um, I've got this ability to connect with people greater. And so from late March until the end of September, I added on top of my one a week, 
five live video streaming podcasts a day. So now you start doing that math, you know, over the course of four months, you know, you're looking at, you know, another 150 podcasts that weren't there. So I'm certainly, and now I've got a mix of, of three total per week. So if you go on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts and search for rounding the bases with Joel Goldberg, that'll be there. And I think website's probably a good starting point, joelgoldbergmedia.com. And, um, and the book, as I mentioned, will be available on Amazon or you can find it on my website and that's small ball, big results. And then I'm easy to find on social media and, and, and you've got all that stuff too, but Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn's a big one. Um, I'm, I'm Facebook. I'm very accessible. Hey brother. Thanks so much for coming on, man. I, I really appreciate the time. Well, I've got you coming on mine too. So we'll, we'll reciprocate. And then I get to kick back, ask the questions and, and, and sit back and, you know, and, and sip on that glass of water, that coffee, and let you do all the talking. Sounds good, man. I look forward to it, buddy. Thanks, Thanks mate. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.